When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I want to welcome everybody to episode number 16 of Matt Memories from Madison Square Garden, a 50-year retrospective, the early years of the WWWF, the WWF, and the WWE. Madison Square Garden, the mecca of professional wrestling, a building that every wrestler wanted to wrestle in. We record one show a month to coincide with the 50th anniversary of a wrestling house show at Madison Square Garden. And to help us look back at all these shows, a man who went to every wrestling house show at Madison Square Garden for five years straight, starting on August 30th, 1971, Mr. Wrestling himself, John Arizzi. John, how you doing? Tim, I'm doing great. It's good to see you. Uh... And uh, tape another episode of Matt Memories from Madison Square Garden, an episode and a date that was a good one. It was a very, uh, it was it was epic. And we'll get into that as we continue. But uh, always happy to be with you here to review what happened 50 years ago. It is a new year. And I want to thank everybody, all our new Patreons out there. A lot of holiday presents have been giving for our Patreon. A lot of people got Patreons as a gift. And it's a new year. And they said, hey, I want to subscribe this year. So we want to thank all them. Uh, joining the Patreon, patreon.com slash John Arizzi. John, for all the new Patreons and the older Patreons, but all the new Patreons who really don't understand how much stuff is in this Patreon account. Can you please help us out? What, what, do, what do they get in the Patreon account? There are different levels, of course, but there's so much stuff up there, Tim. Uh, we have, uh, for the new members who have were gifted the $5 membership, you get access to my entire archives of radio shows, Pro Wrestling Spotlight, which now are 189 episodes uh, available for patrons. You get early access to this podcast, to my other podcast, the Pro Wrestling Spotlight. And then as you increase your levels, if you wanted a $10 level or a $25 level, you get additional perks, including rare videos, 8mm movies. I have really historic archives of old WWWF TV shows and promos from back then. And I also put up photo sets. For example, just last month, I discovered while digitizing some more of my negatives that I was at a house show at Madison Square Garden from April of 1980. I didn't even remember going to this show. And I had these beautiful photographs of Hulk Hogan with Freddie Blassie as his manager in the middle of the ring at Madison Square Garden. Some 
phenomenal shots. Hogan right in front of me, flexing, posing on that same card. Um, the debut of Ricky the Dragon Steamboat at Madison Square Garden, a very young Ricky Steamboat who teamed up with his partner, Jay Youngblood, who is no longer with us. And and uh, they were against uh, Bulldog Brower and uh, Tor Kamata. So those were shots that were beautiful. And then it was Afa the Wild Samoan in the main event against Bob Backlund. Some really good shots of Backlund with the belt. Uh, I shared uh, some of those pictures, about 12 of them on our Patreon account. Uh, so that is up there for members in that category. And then, of course, I give out vintage wrestling magazines for the upper tiers. For those upper tiers as well, the patrons who are in that category actually get to do a guest appearance on the Pro Wrestling Spotlight podcast. So, um that is kind of cool. And uh, maybe we'll add that perk here. I know Carrie Silken, who started Ring of Honor, uh, he wants to come on the show because he was at all the house shows at Madison Square Garden as well in this era. Oh, I think he started going in 72, 73. And Carrie, of course, founder of Ring of Honor. Well, not the founder, but he ran it for many, many years. But anyway, Carrie can talk about that. But we're going to invite him maybe on the next episode or uh, maybe even that special that we're putting together uh, when Andre made his debut. So, uh, yeah. It's it's really cool. Patreon.com slash John Arezzi. Go there, check it out, browse it, and you'll see that for $5 a month to get you in the door, it's certainly worth it. And we appreciate every single one of you that are in there right now. And, and let me just add something more about the Patreon. Uh, the pictures that you put up don't have that gloss on them. You know, they're not watermarked. There you go. Not watermarked. That was the line I was looking for. Join the community. Join the fun. Patreon.com slash John Rizzi. Help us keep the lights on. We really do appreciate it. And uh, since we're starting a new year, 1973, we want to look back at 1972. Now, 1972, Pedro Morales held the WWW. Championship for the whole year. He won the championship in February 8th, 1971 against Ivan Koloff. And John, I just want to go over the year of Pedro. He had some really good matches, some really good house shows, and some really not so good house shows. And if you don't mind, John, let's go over Pedro Morales' title reign for 1972. I'll start it off January 31st. Pedro had a DQ match against Toro Tanaka. It was 18 minutes, 21 seconds, 22,076. So it was a sellout match. Toro Tanaka, good opponent for Pedro. Yeah, Tanaka was always that great uh, heel villain. And of course, this year, as you were referencing, 1972 was the first uh, full year that Morales held the title. Uh, so he came back after that DQ went over Tanaka on January 31st, February 21st of 72. He came back and beat Tanaka in nine minutes, 59 seconds. And once again, that was a sellout at the Garden of 22,090. In March, March 13th, Pedro pinned Baron Miguel Sacluna in 11 minutes, 34 seconds. Not a sellout, 18,300. Uh, the Baron, why was he in a title match against Pedro? It was just one of those things where he was getting a push. And at that time, uh, he and King Curtis were the uh, WWF Tag Team Champions. So uh, that was that. I mean, he came in and it wasn't a, it was a, you know, short match, 11 minutes, and not a sellout, a 18,000, as you said, 301. Then the following month, April 17th, he took on uh, Sakluna's tag team partner, co-holder of the championship, King Curtis. That was the lowest attended show of 1972 with only 15,549 in the building. Pedro pinned Curtis in seven minutes and five seconds. But yeah, that erosion from the sellouts um, in the beginning of the year to where they were, they dropped uh, 25% of their live crowd. Yeah, and then they tried to bring it back in May. Pedro pins Pampero Furpo in 15 minutes, 21 seconds, 19,360. 
57. If you want to go back and listen to this episode, I, I highly recommend it because we had Furpo's daughter on the show. Yeah, Mary was uh, gracious enough to share some stories about her dad, Pampero Furpo, and uh, so, yeah, if you go back into the archives of Matt Memories at Madison Square Garden, just look for May 22nd, 1972, and that special guest, Mary uh, Mary Furpo, was on there as well. well what, you, I know you got a little tongue-tied because what's her name? She, it's not Mary Furpo. She goes by another name. No, I mean, it's another name. I can't yeah, I mean, pronounce either. it. It's too long. I forgot what it was. But but she's Karsagian. fantastic. I think it's Karsagian or something like that. I, yeah. I think so, and she's fantastic. And we also have some great pictures that she gave us to include in the archives. Yeah, that's on Patreon. Uh, there's a lot of there's a number of photos that she shared with us of her dad. And so if you're a patron and go back to the Map Memories from Madison Square Garden episode from May 22nd, 72, those photos will be there for your enjoyment <laughs> you know what i enjoyed so much we got to see the behind the scenes of yeah. a family man with his daughter and his family so furpo it was really yes, nice of mary to include those shots to see the, the human side of her dad so uh, you know obviously there are no shows in june at the not obviously but there were no shows in june at the garden uh, they did two shows in july actually july 1st of 72 pedro uh went in and beat george the animal steel 14 minutes 59 seconds a little bit closer to a sellout on this one as well 19,502 in the building and on july 29th pedro pins the spoiler in 20 minutes 44 seconds 17,398 in attendance still not a sellout uh and it seems like it's falling again yeah yeah it's just a matter of the opponent and what the push was and even the other attractions that would be booked on the show so uh that all has to be taken into consideration in this particular show 17,000 not a money loser but still not a sellout uh they had no august show and then they come back september 2nd which was really the month that was very historic because of the uh the confrontation between bruno and pedro on uh, wwwf tv in this particular match on september 2nd in the main event Ernie the Cat Lad came in. He lost to Morales in 15 minutes and five seconds, but it was a sellout. It was 21,819. And if you remember, uh, they didn't have an August show, so they had two shows in September, September 2nd, and then a Shea Stadium show on September 30th. And what we were, John was just talking about is Bruno and Pedro coming together on TV and then building up for this big match at Shea Stadium, which didn't turn out to be the best for the company. No, it was, uh, you know, we went over it ad nauseum uh, in regard to that particular show, and there is a special on it, and you could hear that, of course, uh, in the archives. If you go to any podcast platform you listen to the show on, there was a special on that Shea Stadium show. They come back really fast on October the 16th, where after the Morales-San Martino match, uh, they reunite. And they take on Tanaka and Fuji for the WWWF uh, tag team titles. And, you know, no title changed hands, but they did beat uh, Tanaka and Fuji 17 minutes, 34 seconds total, 15,423 in the building. So no matter what, even on the fall off from the Shea Stadium show, uh, the fact that there were three shows and really, if you look at it, a month and a half. 15,423 was the attendance for that one. Yeah, not not that good. Uh, going into November, they needed to do something, so they brought in Ray Stevens November 27th. Pedro beat Ray Stevens in a match that was stopped because of blood. We talked about this because this was something very exclusive to this time period where you can stop a match, and it wasn't because of the blood as much because it was probably because of the riots that could have been caused 
at the garden, correct, John? Well, I mean, anytime Morales was in trouble, the the security was always kind of fearful that the fans would get out of control. And for this particular match against Steven, it was really a, it was a brawl, stop for blood. But it uh, it really had the crowd worked up. I mean, it was a uh, it was one of those nights, as you mentioned, it was uh, that era where there was extra security because of the volatility of the crowd attending. And that match went 11 minutes, 58 seconds, closer to the sell, 18,183. Yeah, and then they finish off the year with a spectacular show that was a sellout, 22,906. Uh, Morales uh, defeated uh, Stevens in the return match in 14 minutes, 10 seconds. But the driver to that particular show was the debut of Mil Moscris. That was a historic event at the Garden that really ensured the sellout because Moscris had so much attention on the Spanish uh, Los Angeles Olympic Auditorium shows. He was on every wrestling magazine cover. He was a superstar and he was able to wear that mask at the Garden and it was a sellout. Very historic night. Now, John, before we go, before we leave Pedro's reign, I had a question about Toro Tanaka. Ray Stevens both got return matches at the Garden, but then you guys had guys like Ernie Ladd and Paparo Furpo who only had one shot. Why would that be? Because these guys seem like Furpo and Ladd seem like guys you can bring back over and over again. Well, I mean, when McMahon Sr. brings them in, he has a specific idea what he's going to do with them, whether it's going to be a series of matches, whether it's going to be a one-off. And sometimes with the wrestlers, I mean, they they come in for a certain amount of time and then they go and then others have longer agreements. Um, So, I mean, there could be a number of reasons. It could be even a guy like Ernie Ladd, who was so much in demand all over the country that he uh, came in for a run, got his payday, went to the next territory. All right, that makes sense. Let's go into the match. January 15th, 1973. A very historic day at Madison Square Garden. It is a sellout, 22,096. Uh, bell time, 8.30. And John, um, you brought your Christmas gift with you uh, for these matches. Yeah, this was really, for me, probably a pivotal moment in my development as not just a, at that point a super fan, but I'm starting to um, capture the action. I had I had, had the uh, wish of being able to film some of these matches, 8 millimeter and I asked my parents uh, for Christmas that year, please get me an 8mm camera, and they weren't cheap. And lo and behold, uh, I got that for Christmas in, in uh, 1972, Christmas of 72. First movie I ever shot, of course, was family footage of Christmas in uh, that year. I still have that film, which is kind of cool to take a look at. But yeah, I was like, I'm going to the garden on January 15th and I'm bringing my camera with me. I loaded it up with about, um, I think the reels, the eight millimeter reels at the time, the Kodak, they were about five bucks each, which was not a lot. Each reel held three and a half minutes of film. And uh, I think I had three or four rolls with me. And uh, and there you go. You start shooting uh, some of the matches. And, you know, I, I had to uh, learn really fast because you can't shoot the entire of every match you got to go for the high spots and the finishes and i still like the high spots the finishes and then the entrances of guys coming in so uh yeah that was historic especially as we go through the card when i got the developed film back and put it on my projector for the first time and i saw the vivid color the guys that we're going to talk about on this episode i was like it's there forever you know i i could have this forever and not knowing that you could eventually digitize and 
and I have all the films to this day, which are kind of the jewels of my collection right now. My archives are these eight millimeter films that I shot for the first time on this particular show. But uh, many of the house shows at the Garden in 73 and even into uh, 74. And in 74, that's when I uh, was able to start freelancing and taking photographs. I was trying to figure out a way. How can I shoot eight millimeter film and also still photographs? which was a challenge, obviously, because you only do one at a time. So uh, are you going to want to take photos or are you going to want to take films? Uh, so uh, that was challenging for me. Um, a quick side story. There was a guy in St. Louis named Mike Gratchner. Mike was uh, one of the directors of the Wrestling Fans International Association. He was based in the St. Louis area. And Mike was an uh, 8mm aficionado as well and also a ringside photographer, freelancer. So when I met Mike... This was in 74. He had a device that he actually had mounted an eight millimeter camera and a 35 millimeter camera in the same device. So he was able to simultaneously shoot, film and take pictures, which for the time was so innovative. I wish I had one of those things, which I didn't. But as the year progressed and I started taking better pictures and the Blassie fan club was growing in 74 when I sold my first article to Official Wrestling Guide, and that was a Blassie Nikolai Volkov story, uh, then it was kind of like I was shooting more photographs and less and less film. But uh, for that one magical year of 73 and early 74, I think right, I think the last time I shot 8mm film of wrestling was probably mid 74 it was a Volkov Bruno uh, match it could have been May of 74 was the last time that I actually shot eight millimeter film at the garden it makes a lot of sense John because you got to know go, go where the money is and the film isn't paying anything you're just enjoying the film but the yeah. photographs are leading to a career working for magazines and and, and getting paid for this and this is what you want to do you want to work for these magazines to get money I have a question about the eight millimeter how did you know you say these are about three minutes each how do you know how much time was left when you're shooting uh, the camera had a uh, had a little uh, feature that as the film was being used this bar started getting like you know smaller and smaller and then there would be a little red notification and then it would be over it was always challenging for me uh to try to figure out how much of a match i should shoot and believe me i got really good at it really fast because i kind of sensed when the finishes were going to be and, and some of the high spots so um my footage was pretty good right from the start, as we'll talk about in future episodes here. Are we, we going to put any of this on Patreon? I am going to put some clips of each one of these shows as we review them on Patreon. They won't be the full thing, but, you know, if I share 15 seconds of one match and, you know, some matches like we'll talk about one of the matches here uh, with the little guys. I mean, uh, it was the first match I ever actually shot footage of, and there's only about 25 or 30 seconds of it anyway. But um, I'll share. I'll share on Patreon, for of course. Cool. Well, let's go to the first match. Sky Lolo and Little Brutus defeated Little Beaver and Farmer Jerome in the best of two out of three falls, two to zip. First fall, Sky and Brutus won in eight minutes, four seconds. And fall number two, Sky and Brutus won in six minutes, 58 seconds. A uh, typical midgets match for the time. Very entertaining, special attraction. Uh, I remember it because I got some footage of it. And uh, I know there was one uh, spot where they uh, were all rolling around the ring with the referee. They were rolling him around the ring. So there was like two midgets and a referee rolling around the ring. And then there was uh, uh, another point in the match where one midget was shaking his 
his ass against the other one. I and mean, it's like, it was interesting stuff. But Skylar Lowe was in the match and Little Brutus. They were just legends, uh, mainstays of uh, of the little guy or midget performers. And I'm not saying anything politically incorrect. I mean, because this is the terminology that was used years ago. And they were always billed as the mighty midgets or the special attraction was uh, the midgets. Uh, Skylar Lowe in particular was an older guy, bald. He looked almost like a little tiny version of Popeye, uh, the way he was built. Uh, his real name was Marcel Gautier. Uh, he was from Canada and he was three foot seven inches. He only weighed 86 pounds. And he is uh, was the smallest superstar in the WWF, and he debuted in 1940, and he retired in 1980, so he had a 40-year career. Wow, I- I'm looking forward to watching this. Another thing about the 8mm, I love how it, it just that had that look of old. But the color was just so incredible on it. Oh, I mean, yeah. it was just kind of vivid, and I think people are going to dig it. Well, we're looking forward to seeing it on the Patreon. Match number two, the women's champion, Fabulous Moolah, defeated Joyce Grable in 5 minutes, 45 seconds. John, this seems kind of weird. Two specialty matches back-to-back? Yeah, I mean, that was kind of unusual to have back-to-back. And they were attractions, even though... Uh, you don't like to say that in regard to the women because the women I always had respect for as athletes and felt they should be part of the show and not billed as a special attraction. But yeah, these were the uh, first two matches out of the gate. I filmed this one as well. It was a, you know, exciting match. The women were still new uh, wrestling at the Garden and Moolah, of course, the mainstay is a champion. In this particular match, uh, just to give you a little bit of a spoiler, this footage I recently licensed to uh, Vin De Bona Productions, which they did um, uh, America's Funniest Home Videos. I'm sure you're familiar with that show that's still on yeah. the air after how many decades. Uh, so they uh, did a deal with Paramount Plus for a uh, History of Women documentary. This footage will be seen on that documentary. They took the entire match that I filmed. I think it came out to 28 to 30 seconds that they're going to use of this match. Uh, so you can look forward to that sometime in 2023. Uh, I don't know when it's going to air yet. They did quite an extensive job on the history of women's wrestling and, you know, all eras of women's wrestling. So it should be a good doc when it finally comes out. In this match, uh, you know, Moolah defeats Joyce Grable, only five minutes, 45 seconds. Joyce Grable, uh, a.k.a. or real name, Betty Wade Murphy, was trained by Moolah in 1971. She retired in 1991. She uh, also held the tag team championship twice with Wendy Richter. I saw Joyce and... Uh, September at the Cauliflower Alley reunion because I got some wonderful still shots of her as well and shots that she didn't have. But she was honored at the recent CAC convention. And there was always a bit of controversy about Moolah and the alleged her pimping out girls, for example. And uh, and then that is flatly denied by Joyce that she uh, was never allegedly pimped out by the fabulous one, Lillian Ellison. A lot, lot of controversy with the fabulous Moolah. A lot of controversy since her passing. Match number three, Mad Dog Vashon and Butcher Vashon defeated Lee Wong and Ben Ortiz in the best of two out of three falls, two to zip. Fall number one, go to Vashon's in three minutes, four seconds, and fall number two, go into the Vashon's at three minutes, 19 seconds. John, why did this match take place in the first place? Well, this was more of a special attraction for somebody like me who was very familiar with the Vashon brothers. They were historic uh, heels, tag team champions, AWA. Uh, I mean, Mad Dog Vashon was a former AWA champion. His brother Butcher Vashon was a really rough customer. They put him in against two um, jobbers. Lee Wong and Ben Ortiz were uh, 
uh, on TV all the time. They lost. They never won. And this was more of a, I think it was more of a showcase that here come these brutes, these Vashon brothers making their debut at the Garden and their presence immediately. And I have it on film, so I could always refer to that. And I was so excited to see them. I mean, this was the match out of uh, all of these on this particular show that I was really looking forward to seeing just due to the fact that it was the Vashans. So they come into the ring and they immediately like start jumping up and down, like uh, almost like trying to leap, like both of them at the same time circling the ring. And then they went to town on uh, Wong and Ortiz and no offense at all by uh, by the jobbers. Their chops, you know, pre-Rick Flair this is, their chops were incredibly loud, uh, especially Butcher Vashan. And, and he had a tendency to use his nails and he'd rake the back of these guys. And it was just one-sided match. It was exciting for me to see these guys. They wore these bright red outfits going into the ring and just seeing them was really exciting for me. And the fact that I have that memory that I could just pull up and watch anytime I want on this 8mm footage that I have is really special for me. That was, uh, that, was, that was a very memorable moment for me. It was, of course, their first appearance at the Garden. Mad Dog Vashon was part of the 1948 Olympic Games in on the Canadian team. He finished seventh at the 174-pound category. Uh, that's where he met Vern Gagne. Uh, so that's where Mad Dog met uh, Maurice, his real name, uh, met Vern Gagne. And the Mad Dog name was given to him in 1962 by a Portland promoter named Don Owens, a very historic promoter, after a violent match. So he was then nicknamed the Mad Dog. He had a very historic career, five-time AWA world champion, two-time AWA world tag team champion. And of those title reigns, when he was teaming with his brother, Paul, and the other one was actually with Vern Gagne. He was elected to the Hall of Fame in 2010. Vivian Vachon was his sister, and he was the uncle of Luna Vachon. Uh, Paul Vachon, also known as The Butcher, he debuted in 1957. He retired in 1985. This was his first appearance at the Garden. Another thing about the Vachon brothers, they also held the Canadian tag team titles. And he was, uh, as I mentioned, known for using foreign objects as far as his fingernails go. And uh, he also, uh, a la Freddie Blassie, uh, used his teeth in many matches at all, biting his opponents, biting him on the back, even, which is crazy. Uh, Lee Wong, Pure enhancement talent. Wong was ranked number four as the 15 worst wrestlers of the 70s. Uh, Andy Kaufman came in at number two that year, uh, by the way. Ben Ortiz, first garden appearance and strictly a TV jobber. Uh, you know what? We, we talk about this every time we start the show. Madison Square Garden, a venue that every wrestler wanted to wrestle in. Mad Dog and Butcher wanted to wrestle at the Garden. Just to be at the Garden. To say you were at the Garden. And it's hard to talk about nowadays where matches appear everywhere in the world. Back in the day, the Garden was a very, very special place. And if you played the Garden, it said something. Yeah, everybody wanted to work at the Garden. Everybody wanted to. The entire wrestling business back then, or even today, I mean, because it still has that mystique as the mecca of all arenas in the world. People say if you work the garden, if you wrestle the garden, that's when you know you made it in the wrestling business. So, you know, 
I don't know if Lee Wong or Ben Ortiz can say that's what made it, but I'm sure those are memorable, memorable moments. Uh, if those gentlemen are still alive, I don't know if they are or not, Lee Wong, Ben Ortiz, but wrestling the garden was like, all right, I made it to the garden. That means I made it in the wrestling business. Absolutely. A match number four, the Black Gorman defeated El Olimpico in eight minutes, six seconds. Yeah, this was another one for me. It's um, extremely exciting to see Black Gorman come back and make an appearance at the garden. And the fact that I have my eight millimeter camera there against El Olimpico, I have some good footage of that match. It was a short match. Eight uh, minutes and six seconds, uh, but uh, was kind of you know disappointed still that they hadn't uh, teamed up Gordman and, and Goliath yet at the Garden uh, because they were such a historic tag team and and uh, with their America's Tag Team Championship belts based out of Los Angeles that was something that I always wanted to see but for some reason they never brought him in that way. Match number five, Victor Rivera fought WWF Tag Team Champion Mr. Fuji to a twenty-minute time limit draw. That sounds a lot. It was a boring, boring match. It was also a match that I didn't even bother to film. I wanted to save my film <laughs> for, you know, the rest of the show. But I was never a fan of Victor Rivera, even though he was kind of beloved and a B-level performer, a big star for a lot of years. Fuji was Fuji. He was never really someone that excited me at all uh, as a wrestler or as a manager, although he was a very nice individual. And Mr. Fuji, uh, uh, real name Harry Fujiwara, born in Honolulu, Hawaii, debuted in 1962, retired in 1966, trained by Nick Bockwinkle. He debuted as a manager in the WWF uh, in 1985 to 1996, so he had a really big run there. Uh, he sued WCW for the video game WCW versus NWO World Tour, claiming that the character Master Fuji was based on Mr. Fuji, and he actually won that lawsuit. Uh, he entered the WWE Hall of Fame in 2007. But one of the saddest things about Fuji was that he lived here in Tennessee uh, a lot of part of his life. And, uh, you know, obviously no retirement benefits, no pensions. Once he got out, he ended his working career as a ticket taker for a local movie theater in the Knoxville, Tennessee area. So very, very sad because people recognized him and he was an usher at a movie theater towards the end of his life to make a few extra bucks to live. Wrestlers are independent contractors, which you make decent money when you're an independent contractor. But if you don't have benefits, you don't have pension plans or retirement plans, this is what happens towards the end. So a lot of what happened to Mr. Fuji happened to a lot of wrestlers of this time, correct? Yeah, very true. A lot of guys just leave the business and they spend it as they go. You know, when you have to pay your own expenses and you have to pay your own hotel and your car rentals and your meals, and then you get your payoffs and there was never a salary. There was never, a, you're, you know, you're getting a portion of the gate based on where you build at the card back in, in this time. There was never anything set in stone about I'm going to make this guarantee uh, for the next three or four months. So it was uh, it was a one sided business. It's changed somewhat since then, obviously, with the massive amount of money that's being made. But for those guys that worked their asses off, uh, there weren't very many of them that came out of it financially solvent. No, and, and you know, that's one of the reasons we do this podcast is to look back at the guys that paved the way for the WWF and the WWE. These guys, if it wasn't for them, there would not be any WWE today. That is very, very true. Let's go on to match number six. WWWF world champion Pedro Morales pinned Moondog Maine in seven minutes, nine seconds with a flying 
flying body press off the top rope. Yeah, this was a good one. I mean, it was a it was a real brawl, and I mean, and they really built up the main event with the incredible promos that Captain Lou Albano did on TV leading up to it with Lonnie Main, and Lonnie had this maniacal gimmick. Captain Lou would feed him live goldfish during the promos, and he was like, "Have another, have another, have another," and Moondog Main would just be eating these live goldfish on TV while Vince McMahon was interviewing him. And it, and it would be Captain Lou. Just, I never forget the promos. Have another, have another. And it was just crazy. This match was exciting from minute one, even though it was only seven, nine, seven minutes and nine seconds, because I, I captured it on film as well. It was Maine and Albano charging into the ring first. And Albano was just like he's wearing this white shirt and a tie and his sleeves are rolled up and he's, you know, working the crowd. And Lonnie Main had this big poncho on with a headband and maniacal and the fans were just they erupted and then they erupted even more when Morales didn't walk to the ring. He ran to the ring, tore his belt off. First thing he did was laid into Albano, who took some tremendous bumps in the beginning of the match, and it was a crazy brawl. Morales took some incredible bumps over the top rope. He he took bumps over the top rope like no one I've ever seen before. You think the guy was going to die. And it's so vivid for me, like I said, because I have the film to reference it. And finally, uh, Morales had a spectacular flying body press off the top rope, pinned him one, two, three. And that was that. And uh, ironically, some side notes, Maine was originally known as One Man Gang, ironically, uh, before he, he, he used that moniker. Uh, the nickname Moondog was acquired by uh, Vince McMahon Sr. And another one of the um, things that he used to do, which was really incredible during the promos, aside from swallowing the live goldfish, but he would also eat light bulbs. He'd be chomping on light bulbs during promos and raw meat and other times. Moondog Maine would proclaim himself as king of the Mexican death match for whatever reason. But um, uh, yeah, very memorable guy. Very memorable guy. I want to give a, a little shout out to Captain Lou Albano. When you used to go to a card, he's your hype man. I always remember seeing him in the ring and like, you're yelling, oh, you suck, you suck. And he'd go from corner to corner, and he'd he turn his head real quick and go, oh, who said it now? Who said it now? Oh, did you say it? Oh, oh, no, someone over here said it. And he'd hype the crowd up so well. You don't get that on TV. You don't understand that. When you're at a live event and you have a manager like a Captain Lou Albano hyping the crowd up, it just makes that place into a frenzy. You talk about when they say generational talent. Captain Lou Albano was not just a generational talent. He was a multi-generational talent because his career lasted and he had so many variations of it. And between the early days as a wrestler, uh, then manager. I mean, he was the manager for Ivan Koloff when Koloff beat San Martino at the same time managing the Mongols uh, mainstay. But he came into his own and out of, and, I, and I love Freddie Blassie, as you know, I ran his fan club and Freddie, you know, became a manager in 74. Grand Wizard was around and then there was, of course, Arnie Skolan. There was a lot of managers. There Bobby Davis was a historic manager. Tony Angelo was also a, a, another famous manager from the area, Wild Red Berry, and so many others. In my opinion, Captain Lou Albano 
is the number one wrestling manager of all time because of his unpredictability, because of his ability to rile a crowd up, because he also was a wrestler and he took great bumps. He bled like a pig many times, was never afraid to blade himself. And he has the record for most tag team champions of all time. And that's something he prided himself on. And there was no one better with promos. And they were all off the cuff. There was nothing rehearsed. There was nothing scripted. And he was hilarious in some of the things that he said. And, you know, uh, we'll be talking about the Valiant Brothers in future episodes. And that was another level up for him when he started managing Handsome Jimmy and Luscious Johnny. And for me, getting to know him and become friends with him and book him at events and private bowling parties with listeners and, and conventions and everything else. And the times he appeared on the Pro Wrestling Spotlight radio show and just his body of work. And then he became an actor and I can't say enough about Captain Lou, man. I mean, he, in my opinion, the very best wrestling manager of all time in the history of the business. And don't forget about WrestleMania, what he did for WrestleMania. The whole women's thing involved with Cindy Lauper was because of Captain Lou. Yeah, and uh, meeting her on an airplane uh, from coming back from Puerto Rico, and that was uh, that really started it all, introduced by uh, Mickey B, who worked at WNYG, and who was a DJ there and uh, but yeah everything he did I mean without Captain Lou uh, and meeting Cindy who knows if there was ever going to be a, a WrestleMania there might have not been but uh, he was instrumental in so many different ways what we talk about not just with the WrestleMania at the time the biggest thing around was MTV and that made the connection between wrestling and MTV it became the rock and wrestling connection that's where it all started and you can't buy that kind of publicity back then no, this huge. was MTV it was nationwide so if you're taking your wrestling program from New York and want to go nationwide MTV was the place to go. Well, you know, that brought me back when it was in 84. I was managing a band called Panic, a new music band out of North Carolina. And we traveled the country, basically, and opened up for Billy Idol and uh, toured with him and, and so the Romantics and so many other uh, large acts of that era. And uh, I'd come home and I'd watch MTV because MTV was the, the thing. If you're in the music business, you could see all the new videos and when I saw this this angle, this deal uh, with Cindy and Captain Lou and MTV's involved, and uh, it drew me in because I hadn't been watching wrestling, and I hadn't watched wrestling really since um, late 70s, early 80s. When I got out, I got out, and so I wasn't familiar with any of it. But when I seen it on MTV, and I'm like, what in the heck is going on here? And it drew me in, and I was kind of losing my suspension of disbelief a little bit when that started because I'm like, this can't be a shoot. And it wasn't, obviously, but it was kind of like because of all the notoriety and the exposure and the rock and wrestling connection and the war to settle the score and the brawl that, you know, the brawl that did it all, whatever they called it, that drew me in and I got hooked. I got hooked again on wrestling in 84 because of MTV. Thank you, Captain Lou. Let's go on to match number seven. Ray Stevens defeated Sonny King in seven minutes, 35 seconds. Yeah, uh, Stevens gets the W on his way out of the WWWF, and uh, he was in for four months and then moved on, and just a great brawler. And Sonny King was Sonny King, uh, smooth as silk in uh, some of his work, but uh, not the most charismatic guy at times. And uh, this is another match that I actually filmed, but I wish I didn't. I wish I didn't film this match. Uh, the reason will be uh, coming up when we discuss the next match that took place at the Garden this night. 
The next match, Bruno Sammartino pinned WWF Tag Team Champion Professor Toro Tanaka in 11 minutes, 34 seconds. Yep. Uh, this was the first uh, big botch that I had as a uh, as a filmmaker. Because <laughs> uh, I didn't read the meter right, and so um, I ran out of film. So if I didn't shoot Sonny King against Ray Stevens, I would have had enough film to actually get Bruno Sammartino on film uh, when he defeated Tanakh in 11 minutes, 34. It was just sad for me uh, looking back at it now that I didn't have any footage of that match. But seeing Sammartino was always like it was like you're seeing God. And I don't mean that sacrilegiously or anything like that, but he was God when it came to pro wrestling. For somebody like me as a teenager who just idolized the man and just to see him again at the garden, uh, no matter how many times he was there, no matter how many times Bruno, uh, even when I became a professional photographer at ringside, the goosebumps, him coming out, seeing him, this legend, this icon, this classy champion who held himself uh, was so respectful and was a champ in and out of the ring. Uh, it was great to see. And uh, unfortunately, I just don't have any, I don't have any documentation of it, unfortunately. It happens. It happens, John. John, how would you rate this card? For me, total thumbs up just because of the history and uh, the pivotal card that this turned out to be in, in, in my career and now in my archives. Uh, the first time, it was a special night for me and uh, I'll never forget it. And if I do forget it, as I, you know, if I develop any type of old age uh, dementia, um, uh, if I remember how to click on my computer and go back into my millimeter film archives, I could watch it and remember it. If anything ever happens to you, John, I will make a loop of it and I will just put a button there. So when you get, wake up in the morning, it'll go on TV. And if you have, yeah. who knows, and if you have a memory of a goldfish in the future, you can be in joy of watching this over and over again. Well, maybe with technology in the next few years, who knows? Maybe there could be a little computer chip that's embedded into your head and you just kind of you snap your finger or something and then you could uh, watch your watch your stuff. We're futuristic now. We're, we're all going to be robots soon, Tim. Oh, good memories, good memories. And speaking of memories, these memories are going to be about the Patreon, patreon.com slash John Arizzi. Join the family, join the fun, and see some of John's footage uh, from his first time using a 8mm camera. Yeah, it's going to be real special, and I'll do some editing and trim some clips and put them up there uh, when this show is done. And uh, and then, of course, we have others, uh, as we're going to be covering, uh, beginning with the next Garden Show, which, Tim, was February 26, 1973. And King Curtis will be headlining that show. He gets another crack at Pedro's title. And, John, I just want to go a little ahead of time. We have some great stuff coming up that you filmed coming up this year, including Andre's first match at the Garden. Yeah, if you look at... What I have in this year of 1973, uh, beginning with even this next show that takes place uh, in February, I mean, I have that. I have great footage of Morales and King Curtis. It's just phenomenal stuff uh, with the finish and with the explosion of the crowd and the Puerto Rican flags being thrown into the ring. And not only that, but in the next show, Mil Moskris comes back to take on Buddy Wolf. Uh, the Funks are there in individual competition, girls match uh, and others. So I have that. And then, of course, of course, we get into March where it's Morales against Blassie. That's the night I meet Freddie for the first time in person. Uh, I go backstage first time uh, and I had my eight millimeter camera there. And that, of course, is the debut of Andre the Giant on March 26, 1973. So I look forward to covering that. And then you have Don Leo Jonathan coming in for a series of matches, some incredible stuff. Yeah, we have a really good year coming up because memory wise, 
because of the uh, fact that I have a lot of it on film, uh, it's going to be very, very more specific when it comes to us describing these matches and these historic events that took place in 73 at the Garden. And you can check it out at the Patreon, patreon.com slash John Rizzi. But we couldn't do it out. Our good friend Scott Teal and Crowbar Press. Well, this book, Wrestling in the Garden, The Battle for New York, Works, Shoots, and Double Crosses, is really the Bible for this show. And I could pick it up anytime and just skim through it, and it has every single garden show from the late 1800s, and it actually finishes off in the year of uh, 2013. It goes all the way up to 2000, actually 2000. No, excuse me. It goes right up through the end of 2016 and every show, and then they have listings for the most garden appearances. And what I really love about it, there's an alphabetical index in the back of the book of all the wrestlers that performed at Madison Square Garden and years that they performed there. It's an incredible reference guide. It's Crowbar Press, Scott Teal, good friend. This, out of everything Scott's published, and he's published a wide variety, an entire catalog of wrestling titles, historic ones. This is my favorite wrestling book ever. And it makes a great companion piece to this podcast. If you're listening to the podcast and you want to go over it, grab the book. Go, with it. It's really good. So we can't thank Scott Teal enough for putting out this book and keeping you know the history of wrestling alive, just like we're trying to do here at the podcast. That's it for us. John, you have anything else? No, I just want to thank everybody for listening to this show. It, it really is something that we enjoy doing uh, month after month to go back and relive the history at Madison Square Garden. And uh, we look forward to coming back next month for another exciting episode. For John Rizzi and Richie Garcia, I'm Tim Putre. We'll see you next time.